Welcome to Ladies Roadmap to Living Ageless. I'm Jo Jamie Tyler. And I'm Lana Helda. We're here to expand your awareness and inspire you to uncover your own ageless journey. We wanted to talk about a subject that so many people have had experience with, but it's not a really positive subject. It's a difficult thing to deal with, and that is eating disorders. And I bet all of us at one point in time have either had a loved one or watched someone else's loved one battle with an eating disorder. And there's so many unknowns about it. Um, I just find that you don't even know where, where to go. I mean, how do you even know when someone truly has a dis- eating disorder and how do you know how to deal with it? I've personally experienced it. I was a dancer growing up and always struggled with my weight. So I just never was, ex- no one explained to me about how to eat properly. And it was more just don't eat at all and then be starving and just binge. So, and all sorts of things. Well, and it's affected you throughout your life. I mean, even though you now are a great eater, because I spend so much time with you, I do know that it has still um, had its, had its lasting effects. Right. I mean, my system is just was blocked up for many, many years. And I know Lonnie, you've had uh, a lot of experience and and you studied uh, all about nutrition all your life. So I was very thankful to you to helping me get through this. And now I'm feeling great, but I actually uh, have a neighbor, uh, my mom's neighbor in in Los Angeles, Robin Goldberg is a dietitian and nutritionist, and she's been studying this and, and helping treat this for 23 years or more. Uh, She has a private practice in Beverly Hills. And um, we have her here with us today to talk about this. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. I'm excited to chat with you about this because I think it's so prevalent and there's so many misconceptions and stigmatizing ideas that people have centered around not if they don't have a full-blown eating disorder, they certainly could be struggling with body image issues. And certainly now with COVID, I think food is being such a topic, whether we want it to be or not. Yeah. And we didn't, we failed to say that Robin has written a book, everyone called The Eating Disorder Trap. And you know, Robin, what I loved about this book is it's a guide, as you say, for clinicians and loved ones. And I think that's so important because I have watched people who have suffered with the eating disorders with their children or other family members. And the big difficulty seems to be finding the right help and finding the right doctor who knows how to deal with this. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's, it's not only physicians, but being able to find, like I'm a certified eating disorder registered dietitian through what's called IADEP, which is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. In fact, I'm, I'm a supervisor for them. So I train different mental health providers, you know, different therapists, registered dietitians. It's the highest level of certification in the eating disorder profession. And all healthcare modalities have this credential available. But like you've mentioned, on it's definitely a challenge. People don't know who to turn to, who to speak with. And oftentimes they'll reach out to any healthcare provider or mental healthcare provider that does not specialize in this. And certainly it could make matters worse. What would be the first line of uh, expert you would turn to for this? Well, hopefully if their physician is blessed to have 
a therapist or dietitian in their corner that, that is trained in this, I mean, that certainly could be, you know, the appropriate person. But I always like to be able to point out what's called NEDA, N-E-D-A, which is the National Eating Disorder Association. And that's where I would say just like the average person could turn to because it's it's a great support system for them to find a clinician. But also, I know with you know many of the clients I see, they come to me through different you know mental health care providers as well as physicians. You know, I, I was on staff at a major medical center in Los Angeles for twenty, or actually, excuse me, for five years prior to starting my practice twenty three years ago, and. I've, you know, done a really great job of, you know, marketing myself, not only in the eating disorder profession, but in the healthcare community. So I have, you know, different providers sending people to me that don't specialize in this. And then when they realize it's out of their scope of practice, I'm happy to, you know, give them resources of other psychologists, therapists, social workers that have the same specialization because it's necessary to have a team. Yeah. Well, I think we need to circle back um, and start with the big question. How do you know when someone has an eating disorder? Well, good question. I mean, you know, you can't look at a person and determine if they're quote unquote healthful by their appearance. That's a very stigmatizing, you know, approach that our society lives in. So, I think now, since being quarantined, we're around the same people over and over again. And oftentimes a family member or roommate can certainly develop a better sense of someone's eating patterns. And, you know, I think one one big obvious is when a person develops food rules. So what I mean by that is maybe they always ate, let's say, you know, chicken and a a chicken sandwich with some chips. And now all of a sudden, like, you know what? Um, No, I won't eat the chips. Or, you know, is this bread whole wheat or is it gluten-free? Or no, I'm a vegetarian now. Like when they slowly Mm -hmm. start to cut out choices and one would say like, oh, they're just trying to be more healthful. And sometimes it could start out innocently that way, but then it could spiral into a bigger problem. So many people over the age of 50 actually have eating disorders. And this is really one of the topics that we want to talk about today. Absolutely. I mean, I think people perceive kind of as Lana was saying that it's, and this is, I think, a stigmatizing belief that you know many of us have is that, quote unquote, eating disorders are most common in Caucasian young females, and that's not the case at all. Um, and people assume that it's typically anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, but the most common eating disorder that's typically overlooked is binge eating disorder. So 60% of women struggle with it and 40% of men struggle with it. And what I was telling Joe Jamie is actually empty nesters are the highest growing community to develop eating disorders. Wow, that's really interesting. And and what all are you going do you think are the factors behind it? Well, oftentimes it's a, something tragic, a death, maybe they've lost their spouse, um, their kids have gone away to college or their, you know, grandchildren have moved away. It's like people are moving on with their lives. And and the other part is 
you know, some of these individuals perhaps had disordered eating or thinking earlier on in their life, but something just set them off. Like maybe you know, I, have a, I have a client who, um, you know, her husband had passed away and, and since he had passed away, she's been audited. And, you know, she said, you know, Robin, when I was younger, I definitely struggled with restrictive eating. And now she's using food to soothe herself because of everything that's that's been going on. So sometimes it can be a multitude of factors. But the other thing I wanted to say is last spring, I lobbied on Capitol Hill with the Eating Disorder Coalition for Eating Disorder Advocacy Day. And what that was for, what we were lobbying for was actually um, for Medicare for empty nesters because there's four pillars and three out of the four currently Medicare covers. And, you know, people don't realize that eating disorders are like you've mentioned, Lana, I mean, so, so common in the Medicare community. And so we were lobbying for, cause Medicare covers three out of the four pillars. They reimburse for the psychological they reimburse for the medical, they reimburse for if there's a medical condition like diabetes and renal insufficiency, but they don't see it, quote unquote, as a problem from a nutrition slash eating disorder standpoint. Yes. And how did that go now? Are you seeing any movement in that in a positive way? Well, it's funny because through this, I've been getting, I'm on this um, chain text basically like I sat with Ted Lou's head people Diane Feinstein's um, like being a constituent in California and sitting with four of them I mean it's it's great you know you know Jackie Spears and and yeah I mean it sounds like things are moving but there's constantly like okay put this on your Facebook page so then you have those call this number and vote so I mean as, as you both are probably aware I mean any kind of change politically or for a law or some sort of, you know, new recommendation to pass could take quite some time. So slowly it's happening, but it's at the rate of molasses typically. Well, I want to ask you when, when, let's say a loved one goes to the doctor and they have noticed that someone is not eating the way they used to or has, is seems to be losing a lot of weight. You mentioned that there are some trigger things that you can be saying to that loved one that you, you may think, or we may think is helpful, but indeed it is not. What are those, some of those 10, didn't you say you have 10 different things that you should not say to someone who you think may have a eating disorder? I I didn't say I have 10, but I can tell you a bunch of them. (laughs) Certainly. (laughs) I don't know where I thought I read the 10, but anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think oftentimes, you know, a person will say like, oh, I'm so envious. Like, I love how you look. Or if I had the discipline that you have, or I'm I'm impressed that you can wear such and such. I mean, because I think the problem is when a person goes to the doctor, let's say, labs could appear normal until they're not normal. But there might be other symptoms that a person's experiencing, such as sleep abnormalities. And what I mean by that is perhaps a person was able to fall asleep 
in the past or sleep through the night. Now they're like, oh, it's because I'm going through menopause. My sleep, I can't sleep in. I'm, you know, I'm having flashes. Well, when a person's nutrition is compromised, they will definitely either have a problem falling asleep at night, sleeping through the night, have sweats, which are not menopausal related. And that's due to suboptimal nutrition at dinner, if they even eat dinner and or having a snack after dinner. So believe it or not, like sleep patterns, mood, concentration, all of that could be completely managed as their nutrition improves. I feel like we're hearing the same story over and over, Lana, because we just had on a hormone expert, uh, Dr. Anna Kabeka, who mentions the same thing on how important diet is. So, Robin, what is your philosophy? I've been reading in your book, I felt like you're very balanced in your thinking of diet. Can you share with us your philosophy about diet? So I'm known as a non-diet approach, weight-inclusive registered dietitian. And, and what that means is if you think of a baby or a small child, like your granddaughter, Alana. So we were all born and blessed with this internal wisdom to be able to eat when we are hungry and stop when we're satisfied. And slowly through the aging process, we become more and more disconnected to stop paying attention to our body's hunger and fullness cues, whether we pick up messages through diet culture or the medical community or a loved one that certainly influences the food choices that a person will and will not eat. So my philosophy is I am a non-diet approach, intuitive eating nutrition therapist. And what that means is I not only help people establish freedom and flexibility with food choices without having guilt or shame, but I help them be able to make food choices without experiencing, you know, an ethical dilemma or guilt. And they're able to honor hunger fullness and, and establish pleasure in eating. But I, but I will just point out, like it's normal to have cravings and it's normal to honor them. So I'm under the school of thought, like if you're craving ice cream, have ice cream, not substitute it for strawberries. As delicious as strawberries are, it's not the ice cream. So being able to be emotionally and physically fulfilled are just as important when a person's eating. So, you know, we hear so much that a lot of this is based psychologically. How often do you find your patients also need to be working with a psychologist or psychiatrist? And do they need to be medicated or is there medication to help with this? So a couple of things, Anna. So when you said how often, I was going to say, I'd love for you both to be a fly on the wall because it's like, Everyone I see is either in therapy or they're being referred to a therapist or they're being redirected to someone that specializes in this. So very, very common. Um, because so being, so I'm what's known as a nutrition therapist. And what that insinuates is I help people connect their feelings centered around food. Unfortunately, okay. people associate quote unquote registered dietitians. Like when um, Joe Jamie, you'd said, oh, Robin's a registered dietitian nutritionist. Like just to kind of say that anyone can say they're a nutritionist. All mm -hmm. registered dietitians are nutritionists, but not all nutritionists are registered dietitians. And how a person becomes, now we're called RDNs, registered dietitian nutritionists. And how a person obtains that credential is it's either their bachelor's or master's in dietetics then we apply for what's called a dietetic internship. It's like a residency computer match. I did mine in 
Virginia, and then were eligible to take a nationwide examination. So unfortunately, there are registered dietitians that I would say have contributed to the development of someone having a food problem because they're what I would call a traditional dietitian. They create rules and diets and meal plans. So it's very, very common that a person you know, requires a therapist. And so if they don't have someone, I gladly will refer them out. And then the therapist evaluates if they require a psychiatrist. So if they're depressed, if they're definitely having a mood disorder, then a psychiatrist might be incorporated onto the team. Well, it sounds like a lot of this is psychological. What, how, how do you feel about how, di- how to diagnose this? Is it mainly psychological or is there a lot of different elements to it? Well, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because actually in, the, in my book, I don't know if either of you got to the chapter, you know, it's basically the illustration with the, the tug of war of the psychiatrist. It's chapter three, the identity crisis, yeah, who, can, who can diagnose you, who can help you. So, you know, it's helpful that psychiatrists know eating disorders exist. I have many of them that refer to me and, you know, many that specialize in this and many that don't, but also they do need to have a comprehensive physical. Like when I'm in person in my office, I take their vital signs. So I take a lying down blood pressure, a standing pulse, standing blood pressure, lying down pulse as well. We, we do what's called the capillary refill time. So if either of you were to squeeze your fist for about 10 seconds and open it, most likely you'll see the blood return happen fast. For someone that does not have enough nutrition in their body, it remains white. The color, the blood flow takes quite a bit of time to return. So there's, there's a number of physical assessments that I do. And then like I have a client who just went home to the Midwest and I sent a list of all the blood tests in addition to a bone density EKG that I wanted her physician to, to draw on her. So yeah, it's, it's certainly important to have a, a physician, whether it's an adult and it's an internist or a child to be able to have a pediatrician, but um, so tell me what you may look- or may not. Well, tell me what you look for in the blood work. What What is it? Is there just a multitude of things that look off or different? Or are there a few key factors? I'm curious about that. That's a podcast within itself. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so, so, I mean, there's many factors. There's their liver enzymes. There's their phosphorus. There's their potassium. Um, th- there's and but, but the other thing I want to say too, is like even their blood sugar, their glucose. Like I've had many individuals will be like, oh yeah, my blood sugar's low. It's great. Well, they're constantly operating at a a state where they have low blood sugar. Or if they are a menstruating individual, like through each decade of life, our estradiol levels change. So unless you're trained as a clinician that understands the labs. I mean, I was fortunate to have worked at Cedar sinai Medical Center for five years prior to starting my practice. So I always say I'm a lab junkie. I have colleagues that have just worked in different eating disorder treatment centers. And of course they've learned while they're there, but 
you know, between that and being trained by the top adolescent eating disorder physician in the country, I think I have an advantage, which I, you know, list a lot of that in in my book pertaining to, to labs and such. Well, I just wanted to mention how your book is so easy to read that you don't talk in doctor's terms. So I highly recommend people do get your book if they're even questioning, uh, any, if they're questioning, they have somebody in their life that seems like they're having it. You really do explain it well. But I was perusing your Instagram, and one of the things you uh, posted, by the way, I really enjoyed your Instagram. Uh, everybody should check it out. It's Robin. Is it Robin Goldberg? Is that right? Robin with a Y. Goldberg yeah. RDN. Yes, yes. Thank you. We'll put that in the show notes as well. But you said that going to the grocery store can be very scary and overwhelming for someone with an eating disorder. Tell us more about that. So in general, you know, individuals oftentimes have anxiety about grocery shopping. Now there's so much emphasis and thought on what am I going to eat or what can I eat that's available and what is safe or what am I binging on? I mean, there's so much thought on it. And now I think there's anxiety pertaining to, you know, social distancing. If the choice you want is not available, are you able to find something else that could be safe for you? There's, I mean, even this morning when I was at the store, I was like, okay, there's not, I'm, I'm making this too. I'm like, okay, there isn't, any frozen corn because corn is not in season. So, okay, what's my backup option? I think someone that has so much anxiety around food isn't able to, in a calm state of mind, evaluate other options for them. You know, I just have to get back to this whole cause and root cause because how difficult is it to figure out what the root cause is of something like this? You know, you talk to people, do you often not even ever figure out what the root cause is? Well, I, I like to go through when I'm sitting with someone, it doesn't matter their age, their gender, their body shape or size. After I go through their medical history, then I ask about their family medical history And then I like to target each family member. Oh, what is or was your mom's relationship with food in her body? What is or was your father's? I mean, I go through every family member and I'll have clients like upright say, yes, it's, you know, my grandmother who, you know, was the contributor of this. So some people can just be very outspoken and, you know, say that others don't know. But I think there's many individuals I see that will say, like I was sitting with a client the other day who has a history of trauma, who was kidnapped and raped when she was very young. And and she's used food to soothe and comfort herself and have it be a border that an individual can't get close to her. Interesting. Yeah. If you're, if you, exactly, if you're super overweight, then it's a, they say a lot of times it is kind of like a cushion or a pad to keep people away from you. Well, one well, of the things I, I'm just going to say, Lana, sorry. So the term we, we like to use in the field is someone who lives in a larger body, just like there's people who live in smaller bodies. So using the term quote unquote rabbit ears overweight, that's like a very stigmatizing term. And so say, well, overweight, like over what? And these are terms that we're all 
indoctrinated learn learning about. So I just wanted to say that because, you know, there's people that identify themselves as quote unquote fat. Yeah. When they're not. Right. Sure. So, so yeah, yeah it's, I just want to say, cause those are again, it's a, yeah, really again, it goes back. To, yeah. It probably goes back to that psychological. Well, one of the things I really liked about your book though, as, as you said, you're not a diet based, um, nutritionist and, and in the book toward the end, you really go over the f- different foods and the importance of them. And I'd like it if you touched on fat because, Fat is such an important topic and a lot of people don't realize how necessary it is for not only their body, but their brain. So would you talk about fat a little bit? Sure. So, you know, all of our bodies require some carbohydrates, some protein and and some fat. And I always like to say, you know, let fat be your friend. It could fill us up sooner and sustain us longer. And especially when a person does not have enough fat in their diet, that actually could accelerate the aging process. So that's, I think, important to know. Um, It is important because it helps to transport fat-soluble vitamins in in our body, so like vitamins D, A, K, and E. And if a person doesn't have enough fat, we wouldn't absorb these vitamins, which is a problem. So, you know, the other thing is like hormonally – it's, it's important from just the standpoint, like what happens hormonally in our body, but also if we don't have enough fat, then we're constantly thinking about food. We're hungry. We don't feel satiated. And, and the other thing is too, I mean, people don't realize that it's important for our hair, skin, and nails. So if we aren't ingesting enough, I mean, a person could have all the gel nails and, you know, lip injection, whatever it is they want, they're not going to have a sufficient amount of nourishment. And I think they'll find that they're constantly fixated on food. Yeah. Well, let's, so that we leave our listeners with some tips, I would like to just address maybe the top three to five things that you think should be a red flag again, and, or, maybe in, in that, in amongst that, where to start first, if you indeed do, or are suspicious that someone that you care about is having a problem. So you you just said, Lana, so like a handful of questions. Yeah, I did. Sorry about that. That's okay. (laughs) Um, I would definitely ask someone, do they have problems concentrating? I think that's very important as well as sleeping challenges or if they consume caffeine quite a bit of it and instead of food mm-hmm. oh you I, I just got i just got burned on two out of the three <laughs> tell me well let me ask you this since you're saying that to jamie i just want to ask you robin is there a certain amount of calories that people need a day because i just wonder you know, Jamie's a tiny little bird eater. Not all the time. When she's with me, she tends to beef up a little bit. But do you have to have a certain amount of calories a day to fulfill these things that we're talking about? So everyone's body has a baseline amount of fuel they need to function to fuel their heart, their liver, their kidneys, their brain. Like if and I, and I rarely speak about calories, but I will just say this. If a person's bedridden, we all need a minimum 
of a thousand calories to function. Then there's what's called a stress factor. A stress factor could be like I'm walking from my bedroom to my bathroom, or I have an illness, or I have an infection. There's a str- everyone has a stress factor, which results in more calories. And then if they are active, there's the activity factor. So it's individualized from person to person, yeah. but that's, that's with, with being an intuitive eater long-term wise that a person recognizes sometimes they eat more than their body needs. Other times they consume less than their body needs. And we trust that our body will make up the difference for it at the next time that we eat. So Robin, let's leave on a positive note. Is this treatable and can we get over this if someone has it? How, what's your success rate? Yeah, first of all, it's very treatable. It does not matter how long you've had an eating disorder. It doesn't matter your age. So absolutely. My success rate is very, very high. I mean, I've had a practice knock on wood here for 23 years. I'm, I'm an expert in the field. I'm, you know, pretty established and known, but it does take a long time. I mean, research it shows, I mean, to be quote unquote recovered, to transition from recovery to recover. I mean, it could take seven to 10 years. So the problem is sometimes people will say like, oh, I'm going to stop purging or I'm going to stop compulsively exercising. And if they do this more on their own self-will, most likely when there's something scary or stressful in their life, their prior symptoms will come back with a vengeance. So they definitely would need a team that would require a registered dietitian, a mental health provider, a physician, and then it's to be determined if they would require a psychiatrist. So there is hope and it's definitely treatable. So is it fair to say one of the most important factors in this is don't ignore it or sweep it under the rug and think it's just going to go away? Absolutely. I would address it from the beginning because there's a higher success rate and without it taking as long. And what what about really elderly people? I have friends who have, you know, in-laws or mothers that are in their 80s and 90s who are having no appetite and just not eating much at all. I mean, is that something that you need to, I mean, obviously you have to address it, but how do you when someone's elderly like that? Well, having no appetite, I mean, that's different. I mean, because as we age, our appetite technically does decrease. There's people... I know and I see that have you know, poor appetite, their preferences have lessened over the years, and it's being able to have the desire to, to want to have a sufficient amount of fuel within their body so they could dance, they can engage in families, they can play board games, whatever it is. So having a, a decrease in appetite is different from an eating disorder. Okay. That's well, I know, know Lana asked you how to, um, what are the first things people should do? And I'm, I'm going to assume that is get your book, The Eating Disorder Trap, because that's education is, is, is power. And just being knowledgeable about this is so important. We, we really believe that, Robin. And thank you so much for writing your book, The Eating Disorder Trap. Of course. Thank you for having me on and to be able to talk about it. Yeah. And would you, would you give everyone information on where they can find you? Sure. So, my website is, I have two websites. I have the book website, which is the eating disorder trap.com. 
And then my private practice website is askaboutfood.com. And then on Instagram, it's Robin with a Y, Goldberg, G-O-L-D-B-E-R-G-R-D-N. The importance of this is when you're going through or someone has an eating disorder, at the time it may seem like, well, they're just too thin, but it's the damage that it can do to your body that is going to last to your organs. And so I just wanted Robin for maybe you to touch on that real fast, the importance of addressing it so that you don't have long lasting health issues. Yeah. I mean, a person doesn't think about not wanting their bones to turn into Swiss cheese. I mean, as, as a woman goes through menopause, I mean, their bone density decreases. So hip fractures were the number one injury of senior citizens. And it's not just, oh, I'll lift more weights. It's what we're ingesting as well. And, And also having one's heart have to work overtime. I mean, that we don't think about that as well. Yeah. So it's just going to help you, anyone with long-term health. So we got to keep our, our nutrition up for sure. But thank you for all of this, Robin. And we appreciate your information. And maybe we'll have a separate topic one day that you, that you can share with us that many of us may be going through because there's so much about nutrition and, and eating that uh, pertains to all of us. Absolutely. No, I, I appreciate the opportunity, you both. Thank you, Robin. Okay. Have a good one. Thank you, thank Robin. You. Take care. If you want to stay up to date with our five-star podcast, be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You'll never miss an episode and you'll see our latest tried and true lifestyle products. You can sign up at ladiesroadmap.com. And ladies, if you like our show, please take a minute to subscribe and rate our podcast because it's super important so that other women can easily find the show. You can do it on iTunes, or to make it even easier, we've put a link in the show notes on our website.